0: This morning we come back to John's Gospel. It's been a couple of weeks uh, since we began looking at this, so let's just remind ourselves what we saw last time. We said that John's Gospel was the last of the four New Testament Gospels to be written, and it has a style that is noticeably different from the other three. John tells us about fewer things than Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He deals with fewer events from Jesus' life, But he focuses on those events in more detail. He gives us more reflection on the significance of those events. And everything John deals with has been carefully selected, he tells us, so that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing we may have life in his name. Not only that we'd come to believe in Jesus for the first time, But if we already believe, that our belief would grow deeper and stronger. So we know every time we turn to this book, our first question is always going to be, what is this showing me about Jesus? What am I learning here about who Jesus is? What reason am I being given here to love him and trust him and obey him? And last time we looked at just the first five verses of John's gospel. Verses 1 to 18 are the introduction to the book. In the first 18 verses, John gives us the big picture about Jesus. Then in the rest of the book, he's going to show us the color and the details of the picture. And in the first five verses, John set out the story of Jesus in its biggest, fullest context. He went right back to the beginning of the universe to show us Jesus was already there with his Father before the universe began. Not only that, John told us, the universe and everything in it were made by Jesus. And as we said, what that means is in the first five verses of his gospel, John has raised the stakes as high as they can go. When we deal with Jesus, we're dealing with the one who is Lord from eternity and Lord of all creation. Whatever else we learn about Jesus, this is the backdrop to it. This is the context of it. Jesus is not a part of creation. He is the creator. He is the eternal God, the Lord of all. Life and light belong to Jesus. They are in his hands. They are gifts that come to us from Jesus. That's what we saw in verses 1 to 5. And now as we pick up this morning in verse 6, we see the eternal Lord of creation coming down to earth, stepping into the world he created. Or as John puts it, we see the word become flesh. So turn with me to John chapter 1, if you haven't already, it's page 1063, or in the larger print Bibles, 1646. And we'll read verses 6 to 18. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light, he came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. This is God's word. And it tells us Jesus came into the world so we could belong to God's family. He came into the world as a man. And he came into the world to display God's goodness. First, Jesus came into the world so we could belong to God's family. That is what verses 6 to 13 show us. But oddly verses 6 to 8 aren't about Jesus at all. They're about a man sent from God whose name was John. Who is this? Well, it is not John who wrote this book. It's John the Baptist or John the Baptizer. He also features at the beginning of Matthew, Mark, and Luke's Gospels. And no doubt the John who wrote this gospel expects us to know about him from the first three gospels. So he just plonks him in here with no introduction. He assumes that we know from Luke about the unusual circumstances of John the baptizer's birth, how he was born to an elderly, infertile couple called Zechariah and Elizabeth. You can read those details in Luke chapter 1. But why here in the introduction to John's gospel have we gone suddenly and unceremoniously from the heights of verses 1 to 5, speaking about eternity and creation, why have we gone straight from that to this mention of John the baptizer? Well, it's simply to show us that when Jesus came to earth, he did not arrive unannounced and unexpected. His arrival was not out of the blue. Everything that went before was a preparation for Jesus' arrival. John the baptizer was the last of a long line of prophets who prepared the way for Jesus. And that's important because it shows it is not the case that God created the world and then later with no warning, he appeared in it thousands of years later. No, history had been moving towards this arrival. God had been promising it, and he'd been working towards it for a long, long time. Not only through prophets, but also also through the ceremonies, and even the architecture that he gave to the ancient Israelites. One of the things John is going to show us in his gospel is that all the threads... And themes of the Old Testament lead to Jesus. Pick any thread you like in the Old Testament, it's going to lead you ultimately to him. The world was well prepared for his arrival. It was a long-term plan. It was not a spur-of-the-moment thing. And that makes verses 9 to 11 all the more remarkable. Have a look at those verses again. The true light that gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. These verses are talking about Jesus' arrival on earth. But the remarkable thing is, after all the preparation and witnessing to pave the way for that arrival not just through John the baptizer, but all the witnessing before him as well, despite all of that, we're told in verse 10, the world did not recognize him. Literally, the world did not know him. The eternal one arrived, and the world didn't see him for who he was. Verse 11 pushes it even further. His own... Meaning his own people, the Israelites, the ones we would most expect to recognize him, they did not receive him. This is the second hint we've been given in John's introduction that things are not okay in the world. The first hint was back in verses 4 and 5, which told us Jesus is the light, but he is opposed by darkness. The world is not a totally bright place. There is darkness and evil in the world. And now, added to that sense that things aren't right in the world, verses 9 to 11 tell us there's blindness in the world too. The kind of spiritual blindness that cannot or will not recognize its creator and Lord. And yet, as verse 9 says, Jesus is the true light. Meaning he's the genuine light, the unique light. He's the one who gave physical light to the world, the creation. And he's the only one who can give genuine spiritual light also. It's only through Jesus that we can understand who God is. And who we are and what were we, we were created for in the first place. Verse 9 also says Jesus gives light to everyone. In other words, he shines on everyone. Throughout John's gospel, we're going to hear about lots of different people who meet Jesus. Political leaders, religious leaders, women with shady pasts, desperate parents, disabled people, Each of them meet Jesus, and when they do, they are exposed to his light. And yet, we're going to find that many turn away from him. They cannot or they will not recognize him. So all is not right in the world. All is not right with humanity. If the eternal Lord of creation can come into the world and not be recognized, that is serious blindness on the part of humanity. The creation doesn't recognize its creator. The creation is estranged from its creator. As John's Gospel unfolds, we'll hear much more about the details of this estrangement. But for now, what we need to see is it's not how things were meant to be. And that's why Jesus came. To reunite creation with its creator. But look at how John puts it in verses 12 and 13. He doesn't put it in terms of creation and creator. He puts it in a much more personal way. Verse 12. Yet to all who did receive him... To those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision, or a husband's will, but born of God. Verse 12 explains what it means to receive Jesus, it means to believe in his name. Now, in the Bible, To believe in a person's name is to trust their character. So much so that you entrust yourself to them because they are trustworthy. So this is not about saying, okay, Jesus, I believe Jesus is your real name. No, believing in Jesus' name means taking him at his word, receiving him as God and relying on him. That's what it means to believe in Jesus' name. And we'll hear much more about this as we read on in John's Gospel. But notice what Jesus does for those who receive him. He gives them the right to become children of God. It is remarkable that in a book which is going to focus so much on the intimate relationship between God the Father and God the Son, It's remarkable that we're told here at the beginning, Jesus came to make it possible for you and me to join that intimate relationship. From eternity past, along with the Holy Spirit, who we'll hear about as the book goes on, from eternity past, God the Spirit, God the Father, and God the Son have been in the closest fellowship the kind of closeness that is faintly echoed in the closeness of a happy human family. That has been the eternal relationship of the Father and the Son. And amazingly, we're told, Jesus came to earth so you and I could participate in that relationship. So you and I could join the happy family. Now, that does not mean we can become God. There's only one Son of God, capital S. The Bible is clear. Jesus is the unique Son of God, the one and only Son. There is a unique aspect to that divine father-son relationship. This is talking about you and me becoming sons and daughters with a small s and a small d. But surely, this is still the most incredible thing. That the Lord of eternity, the Lord of all creation, came to earth so we could belong to God's family. So we could be not just tolerated by God, not just given membership in some kind of organization or society that God speaks to now and again, but that we could be welcomed into the closest intimacy with God. That he would accept us as family. Bruce Milne puts it like this. Here, we are promised nothing less than personal membership within the family circle of God. Nobodies are, in a moment, transformed into somebody's. How relevant is this gospel, which tells us that as Christians we are nothing less than the personally valued, dearly loved children of God, irrespective of how others may see us or even of how we see ourselves. We said that back in verse 1, John raised the stakes as high as they could go. He told us that when we deal with Jesus, we're dealing with the eternal God. And now, the gain of receiving Jesus is set out in the highest possible terms. Personal membership within the family circle of God. If you have received Jesus... This is the reality of your situation. This is your standing. This is your status. And if you haven't yet received Jesus, this is what's offered to you. But let's be clear it is an offer. It's not something we achieve ourselves. Verse 13 makes that clear. Those born into God's family are born of God. It's God's work. As verse 13 says, being born into God's family has nothing to do with natural descent. It's not something we have just by being a human being. Now, yes, because God created us, there is a sense in which we can say we are all God's children. But that is most certainly not what John is saying here. What John is talking about is not the result of natural descent from the human race. Nor is is it about our own particular family, background or heritage, good or bad as that might be. Nor is it about the result of human decision or a husband's will, John says. It's not about any decisions others have made about us in the past. Being born into God's family is something only God can do for us. And that is why Jesus, the eternal God, came into this world. If we were all children of God already, in the sense that John is talking about, or if we could achieve that status ourselves, there was no need for Jesus to come. And in verse 14, we begin to see the level of commitment Jesus showed to enable us nobodies to become somebodies. Jesus came into the world as a man. Such a simple thing to say But behind that simplest of all statements, there is a depth of commitment we will never fully grasp. John puts it like this The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Back in verse 1, Jesus was introduced to us as the Word. And we saw from the Old Testament, that's a way of saying Jesus goes out from God and accomplishes what God desires. He achieves the purpose for which God sent him. That's how God speaks of his word in the Old Testament, and that's what Jesus does. And here in verse 14, we learn, in order to achieve God's purpose, Jesus, the eternal Lord, became flesh. We sometimes refer to this as the incarnation. Incarnare is Latin for make flesh. That's what the word means. And to say Jesus became flesh means he became a human being. Earlier we read Luke's account of Jesus' human birth. In all of its ordinariness, But the word flesh also highlights the frailty of us human beings. Flesh is tender tissue. The Old Testament says all flesh is like grass. Our flesh withers like grass, our flesh is vulnerable to cuts, bruises, and breaks. It's vulnerable to disease. Never mind tiredness, hunger, and thirst. Never mind the emotional anguish and suffering that flesh is vulnerable to. That's what the eternal Lord of creation submitted to when he became flesh. He became frail and vulnerable like all the other people of flesh. And as we realize that, we begin to get a sense of the depth of his love for us. There's much more to see in John's gospel about God's love, but for now, isn't it enough to try and come to terms with this? The word became flesh. Both believers and skeptics have always given a lot of attention to Jesus' miracles. But isn't this the greatest miracle? As one writer puts it, the miracle of the eternal one, God the Son coming and sawing wood, walking through villages, getting dusty feet, being hungry, being thirsty, having family who didn't get him, being homeless, losing his dad, weeping at funerals. All those things were part of Jesus' human experience. Because the New Testament is very clear. God the Son did not pretend to be a man. He truly, actually, scandalously became a man. He identified with us to such an extent that he took on human flesh. Now, if you've read the Bible... You will know that God had come to be with his people before Jesus took on flesh. In the Old Testament book of Exodus, God gave Moses instructions for building a special tent called the tabernacle. And when that tabernacle was completed, God truly did come to live among his people. He was present in the innermost room of that tent. And John is referring back to that reality here in verse 14. The words made his dwelling among us are literally pitched his tabernacle or lived in his tent among us. John is acknowledging that was an amazing thing in the Old Testament. But doesn't it pale by comparison to this? To what Jesus has done? This is a whole new level of living among us. In the Old Testament, God was present inside a special tent and later inside a temple. But now, God has come and is present in human flesh, tender tissue. Why? Why go to such extreme lengths as this? Why not stick with being present inside a tent or a temple? Well, we've had one answer to that question already in verses 9 to 13. Jesus took on human flesh so we could belong to God's family. But now in the rest of verse 14 down to verse 18, the question is answered in a different way. Jesus came into the world to display God's goodness. There are various words used in these verses for what Jesus came to display. We find the words glory, grace, and truth. But we can sum them up with the word goodness. God's goodness is not a lukewarm, lightweight thing. It's a strong and full and substantial thing. And in the second half of verse 14, John says about God come in the flesh, We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. When the Old Testament tabernacle was completed, the book of Exodus tells us a cloud covered it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Jesus came into the world to display that same divine glory. That was his mission. That's what he went out from the Father to accomplish. To display the glory of God to the world. But in a much fuller, clearer way. When John says in verse 14, we have seen his glory, he means he and the other disciples have seen it. And he's writing his gospel now So you and I can see God's glory too. And as we're reminded in verse 15, John the baptizer was the first witness to the glory of God displayed in Jesus. Next week we'll hear about the baptizer's witness in more detail as he points to Jesus. But here in verse 16, the John who's writing this gospel says about Jesus... Out of his fullness we have all received grace, in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth come through Jesus Christ. Moses is obviously in the background of this whole passage. It was Moses who built the tabernacle, it was Moses who received the Old Testament law on Mount Sinai. And those were incredible gracious gifts from God. They were genuine signs of God's love and goodness. But in Jesus, we have received a greater grace. God's glorious presence in the tabernacle and his glorious character revealed in the law, those were just a foretaste of the glory revealed in Jesus. In the Old Testament, God describes his own character as abounding in love and faithfulness. And it seems the words grace and truth in verse 17 are John's way of summing up God's description of himself. So by saying back in verse 14 that Jesus is full of grace and truth, and here in verse 17 that grace and truth came through Jesus, John is telling us Jesus puts God's character on display. He doesn't just point to God's character, which was the best Moses could do by building the tabernacle and passing on the law. Jesus is able to do more than point to God's character. He can display God's character because it's his own character. Jesus doesn't just tell us about grace and truth. He is full of grace and truth. The goodness we see in Jesus is the goodness of God. And so, verse 18, Although no one has ever seen God, the one and only Son who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father has made him known. One of the recurring themes of the Old Testament is that human beings cannot see God. Not directly. They can see his presence in the form of fire or cloud. They can have visions of him, but they can't see him directly. But now we have Jesus. Who is in the closest relationship with the Father. The words are actually describing one person leaning back on another. And what those words are trying to convey with that image is the intimacy and love and perfect knowledge of one another that the Father and the Son share. Another way to translate it would be to say Jesus is the one who rests close to the Father's heart. Moses was a great man. But he didn't have that kind of relationship to God the Father. No other prophet or holy man did either. Only Jesus, God the Son, knows the Father so completely and perfectly. And Jesus came into this world to make him known. Through his life and his words, he has made him known. Every miracle Jesus did, every time he spoke to the crowds, he was making God known. And if we think about what happened later on, when Jesus died on the cross, he was making God known. So as we follow Jesus through John's gospel, over every scene in this book, We can put the title, Making God Known. In all of his goodness, his glory, his grace, and his truth. So if you want to know God, it doesn't involve climbing a high mountain and contemplating nature. You won't find him by looking for transcendental experiences or experimenting with magic mushrooms. Getting to know God involves getting to know Jesus. Buddha can't help you. He has not made God known. Muhammad can't help you. He has not made God known. Only Jesus can help you. Jesus is distinct from every other religious figure because Jesus is in the closest relationship with the Father. He is the one who rests close to the Father's heart. Jesus himself is God. He is the Word become flesh. Get to know Jesus And you get to know God. And wonderfully, those who receive Jesus, those who believe in his name, are welcomed as children of God. We join the eternal, loving family of God. So let's make it our goal to pay the most careful attention to Jesus. no matter how long we've been hearing about him or thinking about him, let's pay the most careful attention to him still. Because in him we find the goodness of God. Goodness that went all the way finally to the cross for our salvation. Let's take a moment to be quiet And just personally consider who it is we're getting to know when we get to know Jesus. Now let's praise him together as we sing, you're the word of God the Father, and behold our God.